you know, we sort of talk, there's so many, I don't think there's an industry sector that's not impacted by COVID-19. I think um, toilet paper printing is doing quite well, but other than that, most people are, you know, doing a ton. But so many other industry sectors, if you lose your revenue, you can also cut nearly all of your expenditures. So if you if you close running a restaurant, you have to close, you stop ordering food. Um, you might still have rent and a mortgage or a bank debt, but a lot of your goods and services expenditure you can pull back. The zoo industry is quite different in that with COVID-19, our revenue pretty much disappeared very quickly uh, because most of it does come from visitors um, and catering and retail, etc. But a large percentage of our expenditure has to remain because whether we have zero visitors, a thousand visitors or five thousand visitors, we still have three thousand animals who need and deserve our care. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not so average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by E.B. Elaine Benstead, the Chief Executive of Zoos SA, including Adelaide Zoo and Monato Zoo, a role she has had since 2012. This is a fascinating conversation about what's involved in running zoos in such crazy uncertain times, needing to make hard decisions, the importance of strong relationships and how the animals still need care, irrespective of visitors or not. We talk about EB's story and how the zoo is remaining visible and innovating to keep members and the community connected and the need for joy at this time. A great chat about resilience and kindness, leadership and the importance of keeping the significant research going, as well as the conservation and fundraising activities of Zoos SA. We hear about the exciting developments at Monado Zoo, including a new visitor centre and accommodation and putting some plans on ice for a while. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining us today, EB. I'm going to start off with a question I've been asking these interviews in the last couple of weeks. How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling better this week yeah. because we have um, secured a bit of government support, which means I can continue to keep the zoo operational because I've got to say I was, if you'd asked me before I got that, um, tired and overwhelmed would have been probably the most accurate. Um, the other is I still have this sort of whole sense that the situation's just a bit surreal um, and it's... Because I'm still in at work, because the zoo is still functioning, we don't have visitors, but um, we still have um, 3,000 animals to care for, so a lot of our staff, most of our staff are still here. And you walk through the zoo or you drive through Monato and it's beautiful weather and there's not a soul here and you just sort of, it, it still takes me a while to remember the world that we're in. So surreal is sort of the only word I can come up with. Yeah, because you had 
we caught up for a coffee earlier this year and the bushfires were happening and you'd just been to Kangaroo Island and and that was pretty horrible and surreal and, and there mm -hmm. were complexities about the business side of the zoo and then and this all comes on it's it, it, it's it's quite um it, it, yeah it is it's quite yeah, it, it's a, it's it's a it's a it's it's hard enough running a zoo, I'm sure, at any point in time. <laughs> but when you're throwing bushfires and, and but COVID, really since the nineteenth of December, there hasn't been a normal day as such. It's, it's in South Australia. It was the bushfires, and I think we were just starting to see our way forward after the. And we were still responding to the bushfires and the conservation needs will go for many years, but sort of normal business was just about starting to move forward and then this has come on top of it so yeah i think there's not been much the old uh, business as usual has been forgotten yeah now i have been trying to keep a degree of norm of um, consistency across these interviews from pre-covid to after and a question i've asked since episode one or two is uh, what were you like as a child? So we'll just sort of touch on this and we can come, come back to see other stuff. But what were you like when you were, let's, let's say, I pick an age about eight. So what were you like around about eight? Um, well, we had come out from Scotland. So I was um, brought, we came to Scotland with my three brothers um, in the late 60s. So very typical of what was called the 10 pound palms, except we were Scottish. And growing up in Athelston, which is, was in those days very much the foothills, was always animal mad. So I think from probably when I was about five, if anybody asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, it was to be a vet. Yeah, okay. And that continued all the way through. Um, I, I was going to move to Perth because there was no vet school in Adelaide. Uh, so even in year 12, that was still what I wanted to do. How were you animal mad that you had lots of pets and... We always had dogs. I was also into horses, um, but living in Athelston, we also um, would go out and go out around Black Hill Nature Reserve. Remember trying very unsuccessfully to breed lizards. Never had any luck. Um, was quite, a, I guess, an early environmentalist. And remembering, I think it was grade six, did a big project on Fraser Island and got quite passionate and started a petition and wrote to all the politicians and. So, yeah, conservation animals were always, I guess, part of growing up. Yeah, there we go. And, and but I'll I hate when I see blood, so I couldn't be a vet, so that didn't quite happen. <laughs> I still hate yeah. when I see blood. I think I, I think I was similar in my um, enthusiasm to be a, a vet until I realised what vets had to do. And <laughs> oh, I would have been absolutely <laughs> no, I wouldn't. There's no way I could have been a vet. I'm way too emotional. The idea of, um, you know, if I see somebody crying, I join them straight away, even if I don't know them. Um, so if there was someone having to have their beloved pet put down, oh, there's just no way. I would not have been any good at it. Yeah. So your introduction of you as a child, and uh, I guess I'm interested in how the child informs the adult, mm -hmm. it almost seems quite obvious, doesn't it, really? You've obviously done some things. You haven't always worked at zoos and you haven't always worked with animals, but it's, there's a kind of a... Um, yeah, I guess a flow. A, a, a yeah, it took me. It took me a while to sort of end up here. So <laughs> a fortuitous, weird career path. I think the other thing growing up, um, I was very lucky in that I, I had, particularly my dad was really passionate about education and being the best you can be, whether that's through what you're studying, but also what you give to the community. And he was a very ethical, focused individual, and never ever. 
was there any doubt that because I was the only girl with three brothers, there was no difference. It was just, you know, you're going to do well in school. You should, you've got the opportunity to go to university. Most people don't um, in those days have that opportunity. You've got to make the most of it. You've got to do what you can in life. And so that whole focus on education and learning as being something of real value, um, it's something that has always stuck with me. And I'm very, very lucky that I had parents that, um, I guess, brought us up with that mindset. Yeah, okay. Like, how did you become CEO of the zoo? Like, how did, how did that, was that just a fortuitous job opportunity? Much. Um, yeah, I mean, I have gone into the business world. So I went to uni and I was doing a science degree because I picked all my subjects to be a vet. I couldn't be a vet because I think so. Started doing science, didn't really want to be a scientist, so dropped out and got a job uh, which was meant to be for six months. It was a job in a bank, and that was going to be until I worked out what I was going to go back to uni and study. I ended up staying in the bank for about 17 years, um, and all my study then was done part time. And I, from there, I mean, I was working in the bank, but I didn't do too much of the traditional banky stuff. I did for a while and I was a bank manager for a while, but I ended up in education and I was the training manager um, for, for a national bank. And so I went from there, did a bit of a stint in local government, then went into the state government. And my last role in state government was uh, Chief Executive of TAFE, the vocational training provider, which is a fabulous organisation. And I guess that flew, came from my training experience in the private sector and quite literally I saw the job for the chief executive of the zoo advertising the paper it was at the time the zoo was in um, really bad financial position previous chief executive had left and so the, uh, it was good timing for me and that the board of the zoo weren't looking necessarily for someone to run the animal part of the business because that bit had been running really well yeah. All the conservation projects, the breeding projects, they were all still going well, but running the zoo as a business was not going so well. And so um, the fact that I understood marketing, understood um, employee engagement and understood finance um, gave me the opportunity to, to be brought into this role, which is a real privilege to, to lead an organisation that's been part of South Australia since 1878. Mm. And, and and quite clearly, like we've obviously been involved with the zoo, yeah. seeing that kind of clear recovery and even just um, just different events we've been to and you've been speaking at, uh, the, the confidence that yourself and the team have in, in what you've achieved. Like that sort of, you've had obviously just different complexities, but I need to sort of dive into yeah. all of that. But it's it, clearly you've had, you've been in recovery mode at the, at the start and, and you've certainly got the community on side uh, much more so than you did sort of when you first came on board, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, we were just talking with the, the leadership team just last week. If a COVID-19 type event had occurred five years ago, we would not have been able to survive like we are now. I mean, it's been incredibly tough. I've, I've had a lot of tough times in my working career and the last month has been the toughest I can ever remember and, and really, really hard decisions, you know, standing down staff on no pay who were totally passionate about what they do. But we've always seen that there's a way forward. We know we've got um, relationships with, with the state government, which we, we work really, really hard to build and create. And you can't do that in time of crisis. You have to have done the legwork and built those mm -hmm. relationships beforehand. 
Uh, same with our corporate partners, obviously um, Square Holes are, are one of them. We, we've got some really, really strong links with our partners, with our members and with the community and the government. And that's helped us sort of get through, well, we're getting through, I wouldn't say get through, getting through um, this crisis. So um, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, this has been around for a very long time. It, it came perilously close to failing and in, back in, in those days before when I started. Um, this could have brought the zoo completely undone. Mm. But it's, it's nice that I can see some way forward. I'm not sure when that's going to be, but uh, we are still planning for the future. You know, there's a lot of things that we're doing. Uh, we've, we've got to sort of get past crisis mode and start thinking about reopening mode and how do we make the most of the fact we've got two fabulous facilities that at the moment don't have any visitors in them. That does give us the opportunity to do some things that we don't normally do. Mm -hmm. so we've got to take that chance. Yeah, and, and it, it's been interesting, some of these interviews, um, of how important the culture you've built up amongst your team was there like once this all happens and you've got people working remotely and and you know in a state of um personal and and, and um organizational chaos it's hard to kind of suddenly build up a, a culture and absolutely and your point about going having those great stakeholder relationships which don't seem to have existed to the same strength five years ago if you don't if you didn't have that like the strong culture the strong stakeholder relationships then it's going to make it near impossible to kind of resolve and so, so really having that having a strong leadership team and having a strong team behind you now is obviously making it's, it's still a challenging time but it makes it a little bit easier oh absolutely and, and building having a good sense of trust between um, the board and, and management and i've got a fabulous board um because you're right suddenly doing a sort of crisis management through computer screens is very different <laughs> And you need, it, it would be hard to do that if you didn't have a, a fabulous, strong base. The same even during staff meetings when, you know, I'm standing outside and sort of yelling because everybody's standing at, you know, two metres distance outside. Hard to do that if you didn't have a trust base to start with. Yeah. What's, what's the weirdest thing you've seen over the last week or so? Right, relating back to COVID, and that could be a positive thing or a not so positive thing. Something that you would have never expected. That you talked about it being surreal um, earlier. Like, what what's sort of something that really sort of threw you out? Like, it's oh god, there's been so many. I think for me, one of them that really hit home, and it was just before I was doing one of my. Um, we've been sort of doing daily staff updates in the lead up to our close as we were watching things happen. And it was an absolutely typically perfect Adelaide autumn day. I love Adelaide in autumn. I think it's just a, a beautiful time of year. And uh, I was walking through, and I was at Adelaide Zoo that day. I was walking through Adelaide Zoo, and it was just superb weather. And I looked at our nature's playground, um, because that's near where we were having the staff session, and it would normally have just been teeming with children. And it was completely empty. And... <laughs> Then I, I saw one of our, our cleaners from Veolia, you know, corporate partners as well, come past because it was first thing in the morning and, and the sound of the zoo in the morning is always full of leaf blowers because we, we try and make the zoo look beautiful and presentable before our visitors. And it's so ingrained that we were still blowing all the leaves yeah. off of the path and I sort of thought, do I say anything? And I thought, no, bless him, he's just got such a pride in his work, he still wants us to look fabulous. But it was that sort of um, just weird moment. 
The other was when I, I, my first visit to Monato after we had closed and I walked into the visitor centre and saw the retail shop and everything was sort of covered over with sheets because obviously nobody's going to be buying any product for a while. So they were the sort of uh, odd, just, oh, it's really weird not having visitors here. The, some of the um, more positive ones have been watching some amazing efforts by our, our animal carers because some of our animals are really missing the visitors. Yeah, yeah. Well, mate, just how, how do you know that? Oh, well, if you look at anyone who has been to Monato and stood on the chimp platform and watched particularly our young chimps who come up and they literally play peekaboo. It's just like watching children and adults playing. And on a, you know, a, a busy day, that platform would have a 1,000 people on and all of a sudden there's no one there apart from the staff. So watching the staff uh, cleaning the windows of the chimp platform, but... As they were cleaning, they were doing a dance, <laughs> mm. which was just to entertain the chimps. But they were um, happy for our um, PR team to make that public just yeah. so that we could showcase the sort of things we're doing to amuse our animals. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much was amusing ourselves and how much was amusing the animals, but the chimps were definitely loving it. Yeah, um, okay. Same, we're watching someone uh, driving around the zoo we've been walking goats around Adelaide Zoo just to keep some of our other animals entertained to have something different to watch mm. um, someone brought in a little remote controlled car and was driving that past the meerkats who were really entertained by it so yeah, wow. the efforts that the staff are going to to make sure that the animal welfare is still so high is also giving us a bit of a laugh that's right to be like who's watching who exactly right there's sort of <laughs> a bit of that yeah. Before we go through uh, through too much, uh, Elaine, I, I'm, I'm interested in kind of just you, you explain a little bit more of, I guess, the, the the business of a zoo. So obviously you've got, in my mind, there's two parts. There's the there's the visitor experience side and then there's the conservation side. And obviously sort of the, the, the a charity associated with the conservation side. Can you explain a bit more about kind of, like, I guess the structure of a zoo. Most people would see that the zoo is a place you go when you've got kids or or you like animals and you go along, you buy your ticket, you walk around, you see some animals and then you leave. What's, what's, a, what, what's, a, what's a more complex sort of description of what a zoo does? Yeah, and it's really interesting because I've talked to a number of people about how do, you, how do you think about the zoo? What industry are we in? And we are in the entertainment industry. We know from our research, and you help us with that, that most people come to the zoo to have a good day out with their family, with their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whoever. So we are in entertainment. We're also tourism. Uh, so we are a major part of the tourism industry. A lot of uh, tourists, when they go on holiday, visit art galleries, museums and zoos around the world. And we know that we are, I mean, Adelaide's been the major tourist attraction in SA for the last three years. But we're also a conservation organisation at our heart. That's that's what we're here to do. We're a scientific organisation, so we, we do a lot of research programs. We work with the universities. Um, we engage our visitors. So we, we've got, we're an education organisation. We have, you know, formal education programs, but we're also just doing generic education and community education. So we are quite diverse. So... I guess we, we have animals here as part of a means to an end. And for us, that's about saving species from extinction. So our visitors help us raise money. That's where we earn our money from. 
Yeah. Uh, that money then gets split into the care and welfare of the animals that we hold, but also the care and um, support of animals in the wild, and whether that's in Australia or whether that's overseas. And we do that in a whole range of different ways, and that does take us into a whole range of really interesting partnerships. So, you know, sending money to partners in Africa where we're providing life insurance for the people who are trying to protect rhinos from poaching. Um, but we're also working with the Jane Goodall Institute to uh, provide support for chimpanzees in the wild and education. So there's a lot of, I guess, work that happens behind the scenes that most of our visitors don't see particularly with Australian natives. I think yeah. for the work that we do with a lot of our um, what we might call ambassador animals like rhinos and, and lions, giant pandas, that's really visible. The media is always really interested in it. When we do work with the Kangaroo Island Dunart um, or a range of uh, little birds, orange-bellied parrot, manaimi wrens, etc., the public don't always get to see that and some of those animals, the species themselves, just may not attract same level of attention but we use the ambassador animals to help raise the profile of endangered animals wherever they are and whether they're furry feathery or scaly some are more or less appealing i guess to the general public um, but a lot of that work that we do doesn't always get seen and, and we're trying to look at ways we can get that more visible um, so even things like the tasmanian devil program which is one of the i guess better known australian navy programs all of our breeding efforts and the release Tassie devils that we work with at Monato are behind the scenes. The public don't see them because we don't want those devils to get used to the public. We don't want them to get used to people. But we have a couple of ambassador Tassie devils. Yeah, okay. They're on display. We can use those animals to help, I guess, to educate the public about the plight of the Tassie devil. Hmm. Yeah. And so it must be a hard balancing act. So the, the, so the visitors... And you've got, uh, how many members have you got? You've got members as, as well. How many have got just over 42,000 annual members um, yeah. who are real ambassadors for us. Yeah, so obviously you have membership, you have visitor tickets, and mm -hmm. that go, goes into doing the research and conservation yeah. work. And do you do like fundraising? Obviously you do. I know you do. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, if we look at our revenue, the biggest source of our revenue comes from our daily visitors. Uh, and the second is from our annual membership. The third is an operating grant that we get from the state government. And while we're an independent charity, we do get some funding support. Um, in return for that, we do some wildlife health work. We offer um, school students um, discount for their yes. curriculum entry, et cetera. Um, and then there's a whole range of whether it be um, events, functions. You know, every weekend, there's usually a multitude of weddings uh, being held on site. Um, we've got catering revenue, which is outsourced. We don't run it ourselves, but we receive revenue from our catering. And then corporate partners, corporate sponsors and donors. So we, we do have full um, DGR status as a charity. So there's a range of different revenue streams. And it's really interesting when you look at the impact of COVID-19. And I also sit on the, um, I'm the vice president of ZAA, which is the Zoo and Aquarium Association for Australasia. And you know, we sort of talk, there's so many, I don't think there's an industry sector that's not impacted by COVID-19. I think um, toilet paper printing is doing quite well, but other than that, most people are you know, doing a ton. 
But so many other industry sectors, if you lose your revenue, you can also cut nearly all of your expenditures. So if you if you close running a restaurant and you have to close, you stop ordering food. Um, you might still have rent and a mortgage or a bank debt, but a lot of your goods and services expenditure you can pull back. The zoo industry is quite different in that with COVID-19, our revenue pretty much disappeared very quickly uh, because most of it does come from visitors um, and catering and retail, etc. But a large percentage of our expenditure has to remain because whether we have zero visitors, a thousand visitors or five thousand visitors, we still have three thousand animals who need and deserve our care. And that care doesn't become any cheaper because we don't have visitors. Yeah. So, you know, we we did have to stand down about 40% of our staff and they're the staff who are supporting our visitors. So our admissions and our um, retail staff, the tour hosts, but our other staff, our animal carers, our veterinary team, the people looking after the site, so, you know, we, we still need fences and all of those things, that still remains. So a lot of our expenditure base is still there, but the revenue disappeared. And there's not many other industries, I think, that are facing that same challenge. When did you sort of start first start finding that that was all occurring? I guess it, it, it was surreal because I... Um, it all started happening. So the government was talking about, do we close down um, attractions like the zoo? So they, I guess they were talking about what, what what's right and what's not. And it all happened very, very quickly. When, when did it first hit you that this is, we maybe it might have restrictions and then suddenly it got real? Like what, what, when did it sort of start? Even more surreal for me, Jason, because I, I went on leave on the 28th of February. Our daughter lives in London and she was turning 30 early in March. So... My husband went over a week before me because he's retired, so he can. I had a board meeting and it was all focused on a whole range of forward-thinking elements because while COVID-19 was around in February, it wasn't so much in Australia. We were sort of watching what was happening um, and, and everyone was saying, we've got to be careful with hygiene, etc. Um, so I flew out uh, end of February to the UK to see our daughter and we had I just had two weeks leave most of which was in London, and we had uh, five days in Lisbon. And that was, we were sort of about three or four days ahead of when everything was really hitting in, in Europe. So everything was still open in Europe, but it was starting to be quieter. But we went to Lisbon, we came back on the flight, that was all still okay, but we were watching carefully because it was really starting to ramp up. So I flew back, we arrived back on the uh, 12th of March, and borders were still open at that stage, but it was not, it was moving very, very quickly. And I actually came back with some cough and cold symptoms, which is nothing unusual for me after that long flight, <laughs> especially as it has been fairly cold in London. But I, I did think, oh, you never know, I've got to be careful. There's no way I could afford to bring the virus into the zoo. So I, I stayed at home and I self-isolated. And the symptoms got a little bit worse. So I, I did get the test because I met the criteria, having been in Europe and having some symptoms. And I had three horrible days at home, desperate to be in at work because it was all just really starting to hit and we were starting to do cash flow forecasts, etc. And you can do most of that from home, but I'm a bit old-fashioned and I like to sit in a room <laughs> and talk to people about it. Anyway, I, I got tested and I got cleared so then I could come back in. And by that stage, even in just those four days, 
things had really ramped up. And so while we were still open to the public, our visitor numbers were dropping anyway. We were implementing a whole lot of um, new measures, particularly in things like the buses at Monato. So, um, you know, have less people on the bus so that you can have a metre and a half between closing some of our indoor or monitoring the numbers in our indoor facilities. So we sort of did that for a week and I was in constant discussion with the government and you could just see things moving and moving and moving and whether we're close to the public officially or not sort of almost became irrelevant because we were getting so few visitors by that stage um, the revenue was drying up and so then we really started the cash flow um, modelling and it's, it is scary Zoos are expensive beasts to run. And as I said, you, you can stop some of the expenditure, but a lot of it has to continue. And your cash reserves run out very, very quickly when there's not a cent of revenue coming in. So if you don't have um, you don't have visitors coming in, that's that's revenue you need to fund it. You don't have that. If, if anybody looks at the zoo's financials, um, yeah, we have turned around. So I think it had about 12 years of deficits before I started. Um, we've had a operating surplus for the last six years, but it's a very small operating surplus. Like it's, it's still, it's very, very difficult to, um, if you want to invest money in new infrastructure, which we do to improve both our visitor experience and our animal welfare. Um, where we sort of joke the whole thing of being not for profit doesn't mean you should be happy making a loss. It's a profit for purpose and everything we make, we put back into um, our core um, business. But yes, if you're not getting any revenue in and you don't know for how long that will continue, then cash disappears quickly. And, and you know, it was interesting. We did go, did go back and look at our risk management matrix and just ask the question. And we did have disease in there. Um, and... We've obviously we've we've got some cash reserves, and we've had set a performance indicator about making sure because you might have a month where the weather is horrendous and revenues low. But I don't think we'd ever anticipated a situation where we would have three months, and whether it's longer than three months with zero revenue. Yeah. So how do you how do you manage that as a, a leadership team? I'm assuming you sit around the boardroom, you go, "This is occurring," and we can't allow visitors in anymore. We know this is going to have a huge uh, financial impact. Like, when you don't, when you don't have any, you can't look at cycles. You can't, you can't do any predicting. How have you managed that? I guess the first step was understanding, and we did it month by month. So we we looked at um, sort of we did it from two different angles, and then compared the two numbers. We knew very clearly that we would need to seek some support. Um, whether that was, I was hopeful it would be government support. If not, it would need to be through our stakeholders and our community support. So what would that look like? So getting a really clear understanding of what our essential expenditure is. And um, even that in itself was difficult to monitor or to assess. We had to use some best assessments because we operate seven days a week. We've got specialty animal carers. So if you're a specialist reptile keeper you might not be great at looking after lions um, other way around so we've got keepers that have got particular areas of expertise but we couldn't afford to keep running the rosters we had been running um, if one of our carnivore um, specialists or one of our vets had to isolate or was exposed to someone with the virus 
then everybody has to self-isolate. So I can't afford to not have a veterinary team. I can't afford not to have uh, specialty carnival keepers or specialty bird keepers. So we had to change all of our rosters into sort of different teams so that if some went down, we didn't lose the entire team. So we did that modelling and then worked out what does that cost, looked at our animal food costs. Again, some of those were already under pressure with drought. We were seeing increased costs. Can we get access to all of the food supplies that we need? Luckily, we don't need to buy toilet paper, but we do buy a lot of rice and things that other that humans were suddenly running off the shelf. Um, so I did have to make a, a call to Roger Drake as the head of Drake's and say, can you help? Can't get a whole list of chamomile tea, rices, a range of things that our animals need that we can get access to. Veterinary products, what are, what's the minimum? So it was really working out what is the minimum we need to keep animal care happening. Then there was the question of what would we ideally want to be able to continue to support to make sure that we do more than just survive this period, but that we survive in a way that the zoo is reasonably well positioned for the future. A simple example of that would be our, our public relations social media team. We could have said they're non essential, they get stood down on no pay. I know we've got 42,000 members who are desperate for animal content because they can't come in and see us. We've got school kids who normally come and do a school visit, can't. Um, so we wanted to be able to provide that sort of virtual support and engagement. And to me, that was a, essential. It's not the same way of definition of essential as animal care, but for the sustainability of Zuzi say it's essential. So we then quantified all of our staff into that category and then there was some staff that we said really they're there to support our visitors and with no visitors and no revenue, um, we need to stand them down without pay. And that was the hardest decision because many of those staff have been with us for a long time. They have accrued leave. They could easily have said, you know, I want to take my leave, but they weren't able to exercise that. We stood them down under a clause of the Fair Work Act so that we could preserve our cash to be able to support the animal care. And that was a, they were really horrible conversations to have because, mm-hmm. you know, all credit to my team, not one of the staff members complained, asked why me, why is it me and not somebody else. They just accepted what we were doing was to try and ensure that our animal care was absolutely without doubt and that the sustainability of the zoo in the longer term was without doubt. So they accepted those decisions and in the meantime, we're running, paddling, working really hard, 20-hour days in trying to prepare funding submissions to get some support. But it has been a really fascinating time from our, our perspective as well. You have we've got a number of clients that um, in different ways have been impacted and they've often been really strong. They're very strong, confident organisations and suddenly they're talking about their people being um, having their, their, their hours kind of cut back or being put... Um, stood down for, for a period of time or and just not knowing. I think it's it's a very um, emotional time. But then obviously it comes back again of having that trust and faith in the leadership of the organisation that we've got to, um, we've got to, got to sort of um, hold our breath a little bit as we get through this period that we don't know how long it actually is. But it's... I think that has been the hardest, Jason. If you knew it was four weeks, if you knew it was six weeks, even if you knew it was three months, the un- unknown to this and even what the impact will be when we do, when we are able to open to the public, 
what's the longer term impact? You know, we just we know the whole community is being impacted. So, do people's discretionary income allow them to have the ability to become a Zoom member or come and visit? make a donation, be a corporate partner, all of those things that are so reliant, that we're so reliant on, it's it's very hard to make that judgment call. When I asked my leadership team to take a salary reduction, theirs, were, theirs wasn't an hours reduction because they were working very big hours. But um, for me, that was an important, and it wasn't so much that we, they don't earn enough that it was going to make an enormous difference to the cash flow. But it was a it was a statement both to the government and to our staff that we're doing everything possible and we're all in this to try and ensure the long term survival of the zoo. And um, again, they're the sort of things that you can't do without a good basis of trust and support. And I've got to say, my my leadership team were fantastic. There was one that actually did bring me to tears. I had quite a few teary moments when I was doing staff updates. Because it's just so unknown, you know, and the zoo's been open to the public, you know, through two world wars and a Great Depression. Um, to be able to, to announce to staff that we were closing um, was, was really hard. And the one where I was telling people that we're definitely closing and that we were standing down 40% of the workforce uh, without pay. Just before I started, these are outdoor meetings, as you have to do, um, using Workplace Live as well, so that uh, the staff who weren't on roster or who were at um, our start at Menacho, which I then visited the next day. Um, just as I stood up to do my little spiel from this outdoor place, uh, quietly, and it was, it was totally unscripted, my leadership team just came and stood behind me. And it was just that message of, this is our collective view. This is not EB's view. This is us as a management team trying to say we want the zoo to survive. Um, and it did get me to you. But it is hard. I think as I say, we were talking, I, I looked it over, the, I, I was reflecting over the last decade or so and and we talk very much about leaders need to make tough decisions and it's um, and resilience. And, and in some ways you can look back now and you go, gee, well, that was, it was easy back then. <laughs> this is this time of, Really unprecedented. You could, maybe people were going back to um, coming out of World War Two. This is unprecedented. So that need to make it's, it's working with your team, but you need to make tough decisions that not, not aren't always what yeah. an individual team member might have done. And, and be comfortable making that decision quickly and without all the information because the information was changing so rapidly and it still is even now as an organisation trying to work out how JobKeeper works. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, it's just evolving so quickly but you can't afford to wait until you've got all of the information to make a decision because we just don't have the time for that. And so, yeah, the ability to take what knowledge you've got and, and we had some good robust decisions. I mean, even what might seem like simple ones of, you know, our annual members who we truly value as, as I mean, they're legally the owners of, of the zoo, mm -hmm. they pay for a 12-month membership. And there's some who are, whose renewals are coming up. What do we ask them to do? And do we automatically extend their memberships? Do we put them on hold? Or do we say, as some of the football clubs have, that, hey, we really need your support? And, you know, there's no right answer to any of that. And, and we've had lots of those discussions at a leadership group and then you know i'd sort of take the views of all and we'd make a decision and you know we've, we've got a pretty diverse leadership group we all um, 
have feel very confident in everyone feels really confident in putting their views and we'll debate it and discuss it. I'd like to think nearly always we reach a consensus view. We don't always, and I'll then make a decision um, based on some really considered input from a fabulous group of people. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no right answers. You've just mm. got to make. I think we just kept coming back to what's the what's the key objective that we want, and that's number one is to survive the short term without putting animal welfare or staff safety at risk. And what's our second objective, and that's the long-term sustainability of the zoo. And so trying to put every decision through those sort of frameworks just gave us a means to make the best decisions we think we can. Yeah, okay. You talked earlier about the importance of continuing to be visible to members and um, the, the visitors who aren't able to come to Adelaide Zoo in Monato. Um, can you tell me a bit more about how you've, I guess as a broader organisation, have maintained that visibility and some of the innovative things that you've done? And obviously you've had to respond quite quickly. We have, and I, I mean, we weren't starting from scratch. So luckily I've, I've had a fabulous team. Our social media reach was pretty strong anyway. Um, our Zoo Learning, um, who support our education programs, we employed a, a digital um educated uh, about six months ago so we've been working on a whole lot of digital content it did force us to accelerate things really really quickly and again you've just got to be prepared to roll it out even if it's not perfect uh, ada zoo program which is for our sort of three and four year olds people have paid for a full term they weren't able to attend for the last two weeks so there's emily she still ran the program it was just videotaped and sent out <laughs> And we had lots of fabulous photos of kids dancing in front of a, a TV or a laptop screen. So I think it's been encouraging and our, our staff, our animal care staff have really leapt at this challenge. We've said, you know, in some ways you're the lucky ones. You love your animals. You're still deemed essential. You're coming into work. A lot of your work colleagues aren't. They've been stood down there at home, all of our volunteers. And you know, Jason, how passionate our volunteers are. Mm -hmm. And this is part of their life and they've been told they can't come in. So I need every single animal carer. Keep your phone with you at all times. Take anything you can and post it on our internal workplace. The PR team will then be in touch. If there's something that you've posted that they think is great for the external world, we'll seek your approval to use it. And they've been fabulous at, you know, filming sea lions diving in slow-mo or... You know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We said it's something you're seeing, make sure you tape it. You know, we've got little lion cubs who I got to see personally yesterday, which is my first time I've seen them. They're eight weeks old, but I've been sort of living life through a screen. Um, our visitors would normally be loving to see them just starting to come out and about. Let's make sure we capture everything on video. Um, but it's just trying to be as creative as we can with content. Been doing keeper talks. Um, you know, we did a free flight today because our birth, like our animals have got used to certain things that are not there anymore. In Adelaide, we do a free flight every day and the birds get to fly and zoom above the heads of visitors. Well, they're not doing that. So they sort of put out a call for the, the three staff who are in admin. There's not many of us, but uh, can you come and sit down the lawn for a little bit? You know, so just trying to keep um, Facebook Live question and answer sessions to keepers as much as we can do 
to keep give people some happy content because the world's in need of some nice content. Yeah. Any people can log in and stream different animals, I understand. Yeah, that. that's true. So we've got a 24 hours live streaming of three. So we've got our giant pandas of Adelaide, um, one of our male rhinos of Boothot Monato, and our chimpanzee troop who are continually entertaining. So. <laughs> So people go through the website and they can they can see all of that. And I have I did get uh, one employer who I know who said, "Hey, babe, why did you make the chimps and the pandas live? Because I've got people working from home. They're meant to be productive, and I reckon they're just watching your live streams." But it, I, I think it shows how quickly people can, how adaptable people are and businesses are. I, I, I interviewed Brent Hill, uh, the marketing director of. Yep. Tourism, the episode before this one and and he said his partner uh was logging in every day to an aquarium in the u.s that they released the penguins and um i heard of a museum somewhere it could have, um, could have been in the u.s as well where the security guards got the social media account for for time and just walking around so it's it's that that cleverness and i, and I guess it's it was interesting something that Brent made comment on. He said that he went through with his team and said all the Edward de Bono's thinking hats. And he said, well, we know the black hat. We know it's a dark time, but let's take that hat out of the equation and let's think what our creative ideas might be. And because people need that joy. We, we, we know that it's a horrible thing. And and we, we I think a lot of the research we're doing at the moment, we're doing some work, work just kind of getting mind and mood and sort of sense. And, yeah. and people are adapting. They're, 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 there's bits that aren't nice. The socialising with friends and social media didn't replace that. But they're actually, they're adapting. They're kind of finding different ways to and do it, things. It will be really interesting to see how many of these things, and, and we've been having those discussions, how many of the innovation things uh, continue on. Because you know we know our visitors, and we have nearly six hundred thousand visitors a year. We love coming to Sears, but there's a lot of people that can't come to Sears, whether it be through uh, financial restrictions, whether it be through physical restrictions. Um, can we make some of this online element available in an ongoing sense? Are there different products that we can take out to the market? So I, it really is. And I know a lot of organisations are saying, can they use more uh, teleconferencing and, and have less face-to-face -face meetings, less travel time? And you do try and have to find the real positives in this. And I said, you know, there's a few positives. The, the environment's getting a bit of a break. There's a lot of um, CO2 emissions reductions. Um, that's, a, that's a real positive thing. So have, even just watching um, nature adapt, and it's amazing how quickly animals do adapt walking through our aviaries at the moment just where the, the birds are sleeping you know they're, they're sleeping places that they wouldn't normally because there's less visitors around um cape barren geese are now being seen around the fury or in places they haven't been seen so you know there's some positives and we've got to hang on to those and the, the innovation that businesses are showing um is is a real positive it'd be fascinating to see how much of that continues once we do reopen. Are you seeing much information around the whole conservation side? And that's been something from our research. People are saying it's great. You can see these rivers in Europe that were polluted and now there's animals swimming in them. And have you seen much of that side of like, obviously climate change has been a big discussion. Bushfires would have brought that to the fore as well. And it seemed to be more and more of a, a, a conversation around climate change. And then this has occurred and in a way, like it, it's pollution's going down, and yeah, that... certainly um, the less less 
plastics talking to the one thing with the zoo industry we're quite a global industry and this impact is impacted globally and so yes talking to, to colleagues in south america and in europe certainly um, plastics in rivers and oceans has significantly reduced so yeah there, there has to be some upsides and how long that continues and, and I guess people don't change unless they really have to. And this has just been one of those big jolts of lightning that people have stopped, they've paused. And I guess something we're quite fascinated about, well, what, what is going to change? How are we going to be different uh, post all of this to previous? And that's going to be really fascinating. I think we're going to, in many ways, going to be different people. I, I, what we're kind of sensing is people will still want to go out. They'll, they're hungry to go to different regions. They're hungry to go to the zoo. They want to meet with their friends and even young people that you, you think they're onto social media and messenger and that's okay. And they say, well, no, it's not the same. You, you actually want to eyeball each other physically. And It, does, it doesn't replace, um, I think it was I was chatting to our daughter as she said she lives in London, so we saw her just before this and... Um, she said, um, she said, Mum, I'm, you know me, I'm quite an introvert, I'm quite happy with a good book and I, I'm just just bought me flats so I can paint that, working from home. That's okay. But she said, I really feel for the huggers of the community. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that replaces, she's living with her boyfriend, so she's got some physical contact, but there is nothing that replaces that direct contact. And the things that I find the saddest with all of this is where when you hear stories of, you know, a husband and wife have been married 60 years and one's in a nursing home and the other can't go and visit them. I mean, they're just, to me, they are just heartbreaking stories. Um, you know, really critically ill, Ill elderly great-grandparents who get such huge pleasure from seeing grandchildren and it's not the same on a screen. Not the same. Oh. No, it's the same as seeing an animal. There is something, if you look at, you know, we, we are... I talked about our little lion cubs and we're doing what we can to produce video and vision to show people. Uh, but I saw them for the first time and you get to see them, you see their eyes, you see them interact with the mum, you hear them, you smell them. It is just different. And I don't think technology will ever, and that's a good thing, that technology won't replace that. No, it is good. You've got a number of strategies that the zoo had in process some major upgrades at Monato and lots of other strategies working through. Can you touch on those and maybe a little bit of how all of this might impact them, but sort of what, what, what have you got planned for the future, I guess, is what, what I want to come back yes, to. Yes, so certainly in our, in our master plan, the major projects at, at Monato, um, one was we had funding for a new visitor centre at, at Monato. Um, I was really pleased that um, we were just about ready to go to building tender. So we'd lodged development approval, the detailed design had been done. And we had a very small amount of expenditure that was needed um, to get it to the tender stage. And in our definition of what's essential, that wouldn't have met. But I had discussions with the state government. I said, can I add that in as my essential? Because it otherwise we delay that project. And it's a project that's going to leverage private investment, that's going to create jobs and the state is really going to need jobs at the end of next year. So I was really pleased that that got support. And so we are now, we went out to tender, building tender last week to our six um, builders. So that project is still on track for um, groundbreaking around August this year and, and then opening towards the end of next year. 
that allows the accommodation project at Minato, where we've got Jerry Ryan, our um, private partner, who's investing about $40 million. We've talked to Jerry. He's got a number of businesses. A lot of them obviously have been impacted, as there's many that aren't. However, he is still absolutely um, ready to go. There may be a couple of months delay, but that would be all. So he's still working through ready to open probably early 2023. So that's fabulous news for the state because we will need those world-class facilities. For Adelaide, some of our projects we have had to, I guess, put on delay. The reality was we were in the planning stage anyway and we can still do a lot of the planning. And this gives us more time to engage with our staff and do the detailed planning, but we can't engage the architects to do some of the detailed design work for a little while. We're still planning for it. It will still happen. Just not exactly sure exactly when that will commence. Yeah. You've got to keep planning for the future, though. But Monato certainly a lot of those exciting developments are, are moving forward over the next year or two. Yeah. Excellent. That's good. Mm. We started off talking about what you were like as a, a young girl. If you were thinking uh, about what to say to young people looking into the future, and that could be that could be sort of kids or it could be kind of young adults or even young people young at heart, what would you be suggesting there sort of I don't know, they're doing now, they're thinking about for the future. Yeah, I, I was actually asked to do a, a speech at a speech day, um, not that, last year. Mm. And, and my advice, it really wouldn't matter what age people are. I, I think if you can find a job that um, you really enjoy and that the world needs and it, it fits your passion, then you're really, really lucky and the world needs people who are passionate about what they do and can see purpose in what they do. To me, it's about do you see a purpose in it? And we look at our, you know, our teacher workforce and our um, health workforce at the moment. You know, The reason they're doing what they do is because it fills a, a purpose that they have and I think that's a really important thing. If you, you spend a lot of your, your life in, in doing what you do to earn a quid, Everyone has to earn money. That's not a bad thing. But to me, it's not about chasing the dollars. It's about chasing something that gives you a sense of purpose. And that will be different for everyone, whether that's that you're a fabulous artist that can paint something that gives people pleasure, whether it's you know, a fabulous musician. You know, the world needs those people because I'm not in the least bit artistic, but I absolutely appreciate it and it gives me pleasure. So it's, to me, it's a chase something that gives you a sense of purpose and fulfilment. And the other is to be kind. Uh, yeah. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others, be kind to the environment because if everybody takes that view, the world would be a much better place. Yeah. And I think there's been some great illustrations recently of how kind humans can be. I think certainly the bushfires mm -hmm. that, that seem to stand out uh, both within Australia or across Australia, the, the giving, etc. but then even from overseas, funds coming in and then with COVID at the start, COVID looked like a little bit like it was self-preservation, but certainly the kindness supporting local businesses has, has come to the fore. Have you, have you, have you kind of, do, are you getting, what, what sort of sense are you getting of um, examples of kindness towards the zoo maybe? Sort of, are you, are you sort when, of um, when we sent out a note to all of our members that we were in effect during a, a suspension of their membership. So if we're close for two months, you'll get an automatic two months out of, you don't need to do any paperwork. It'll just happen. Um, 
we got a number of people coming back saying, oh, you don't need to do that. Um, you know, I know this who needs my support and you've got it. I'm not a member just so I can visit. I'm a member because I value the conservation work that you're doing. So those sort of messages have been really, really important. Uh, we've also had some amazingly beautiful letters from children who have zero filters and they just write a letter to some of our animal keepers saying, you know, I know some of you might lose your job, but please look after the pelicans because they're my favourite. <laughs> or things along those lines. And, you know, we sort of chuckle with them, but we share those with our staff because it shows that, um, as I say to my, my team, that means you've created a future passionate pelican lover. And that's a good thing. That's part of your purpose is, is creating people who love animals. And uh, so there's, there's been a lot of those sort of instances. Okay. And where would you, is there anywhere you'd like to direct people to? Obviously, we can we'll put a link through to your websites, but you'd love more donations, I'm sure. But is there anything you'd like people to do? Any message you'd like to leave people with? I think the key is, yes, certainly look at the website because that directs people to the online engagement. Um, and I would just encourage people to remember that, um, you know, the zoo's purpose is about connecting people with nature. And I think we all need that in we always need that. I think when we're facing these sort of situations, we need it more. But it's also, also to save species from extinction and, and we can only do that if we've got the support of the community. Uh, a lot of the work that we do isn't visible to the public, but it's certainly needed. You know, Australia's got a pretty shocking um, extinction rate and a lot of the animals that we work to save might not inspire a lot of love by a lot of people, but, you know, things like the Western Swamp Tortoise, um, they desperately need our help. And it's money that um, any donations we get that go towards our conservation work genuinely makes an enormous difference to those species. Excellent. Thank you. That's a good spot to end. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay.